Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Few political figures command such universal respect as Mahatma Gandhi. The national movement Gandhi helped construct supplied a template for struggles against colonial rule all over the world. But who is the real politician and thinker behind the rather saintly myth? And where does his legacy stand in modern India, with a government led by right-wing Hindu nationalists? Our guest today is Talat Ahmed. Talat teaches history at the University of Edinburgh, and she's the author of Mohandas Gandhi, Experiments in Civil Disobedience. What was the social background and the wider social context into which Gandhi was born? Well, Gandhi was born in the middle of the 19th century in 1869, and he was born in a small town called Pobanda, uh, which is a coastal town in part of what today is present-day Gujarat state in India. This particular part of India was a princely state, Gandhi was born into a caste family. He was from a Hindu background. He wasn't from the top caste, the Brahmins, and he also wasn't from the untouchable um, or bottom caste. Uh, His family occupied what's referred to as the Banyas, which is the third caste, if you use the classic Hindu formation of what caste is meant to be. So it was a third caste in the hierarchy. Gandhi's father and his grandfather had been ministers and advisors, duans as they were called, in these princely states, um, which meant that they were advisors to the various princely rulers. So although the background is not classical patrician in the sense that they weren't the Brahmin caste, nevertheless, they were clearly very middle class, middle caste and comfortable. Gandhi was the youngest child um, in his family. He was very close to his mother, who doted upon him. Um, His father was quite a distant figure, partly because of the particular post that he occupied. But it was also a very conservative household in many respects. Gandhi himself was married according to custom at the age of 13 to his wife, Kastabai. She was also just turned 14 at the time. So this was a classic arranged marriage, as was the custom and befitting of a a household of this particular nature. But also it was a household which was open to many visitors. And so, for example, it was a household where his father welcomed people from similar class backgrounds, as it were, educated people, people that also occupied some kind of status within the princely realms. But these were people that would also come from different communities. So the home was always open and welcome to Parsi priests, to imams, to people that were belonged to um, various Buddhist traditions, such as Jain monks. Um, and they were all invited in order to have discussion about questions of philosophy, religion, society. So what's very interesting about this is how Gandhi, from a very young age, did have exposure, although he himself was in a Hindu family. Nevertheless, he did have influences and exposure to a range of different kinds of communities and religions that India was home to at that time. I think it's also important to bear the fact that this was a princely state, two-fifths of India was made up of princely states. So there was what's referred to as colonial India and then the princely states 
many of these princely states, um, I mean, there were over 400 of them, and many of them were little bigger than sort of modern Gulf states today in terms of geographical entity. And they were quite feudal in terms of their organisation, very authoritarian. They had a relationship to the British, but they were meant to be semi-autonomous. So that's also quite interesting in the sense that Gandhi grows up in a world which is on the cusp and on the frontier of direct colonial rule within India. But nevertheless, he himself is born and brought up in a geographical entity where there is, to all intents and purposes, local Indian governance. What was the significance of Gandhi's time in South Africa for his political development? It was very important to um, his thinking and his uh, political evolution. Gandhi did spend over 21 years of his life in South Africa. He arrived there at the age of 23. You know, So you think about that in terms of his 20s, his 30s, his early 40s. It's a very significant part of an individual's life in terms of their formation in terms of their political, ideological, intellectual maturation that's taking place here. Gandhi goes out to South Africa initially um, on what he thinks is just going to be a year or two years maximum to represent the interests of a a family, uh, a middle class Indian family, um, and to represent their interests to sort out a legal um, a legal dispute within the family. And it's quite interesting that, you know, Gandhi goes out to India. Um, it's very much this professional middle class milieu that he is a part of. South Africa at the time, as part of the British Empire, um, it was split up into various colonies. So you have um, Natal, you have the Transvaal colony, etc. Obviously, the, the Dutch have been there already. But this is a society which is totally structured by race and class. Uh, You have the African population who are consigned to the bottom of the heap, the whites who are at the top of that society. And then in between, you have other groups of communities which are referred to as the Asiatics, people who are from Chinese, Malay background, and also, of course, Indians. The majority of Indians were taken to South Africa in this part of the world as indentured labourers. And they worked in the mines, they worked on the plantations in Southern Africa. There was a tiny minority of Indians who went across as what is referred to as passenger Indians. These were free Indians. Um, These were men of wealth. Um, These were men who were professionally trained and educated. And certainly Gandhi's employers represented this class. They were very urban in their outlook. And Gandhi, of course, he's representing a particular family there, but he's also very much identifying with the class interests of this particular tiny Indian uh, middle-class professional milieu. He identifies with their attitudes. He shares their vision. And that also means that he shares many of their class prejudices and also caste prejudices and racial prejudices. So, for example, many people will be aware if they've seen the David Attenborough film on Gandhi, um, of how Gandhi is ejected from a train, a first class carriage that he's seated in. Just what are you doing in this car, Colleen? I have a ticket, a first class ticket. 
How did you get hold of it? I sent for it in the post. I'm an attorney and I didn't have time There to... are no coloured attorneys in South Africa. Go and sit where you belong. Sir, I was called to the bar in London and enrolled at the High Court of Chancery. I am, therefore, an attorney. And since I am, in your eyes, coloured, I think we can deduce that there is at least one coloured attorney in South Africa. Smart bloody Kaffir. Throw him. Now, Gandhi thought of himself as being the subject of the British Empire. He identified with the British Empire to a certain extent, and he saw that himself and other Indians should be treated on a par with other subjects of the British Empire. So whilst he's in South Africa, to suddenly have this harsh reality lesson whereby Indians are treated um, with disdain and with racist attitudes by the whites in South Africa absolutely shakes him to his foundation. And even more so when he realises that Indians are treated and the, the name that's used for them is coolies, that they are treated little better than, um, than the African population. And as I said, because Gandhi shares the prejudices, particularly related to Victorian society at the time, so he shares in the ideas um, of the middle class Indians who have total disdain for the majority of Indians that are indentured labourers and they keep their distance from them. They see these this layer as being completely uncouth, uneducated. Um, but they also have class prejudices because they, they themselves are educated, because they have property. They see themselves, therefore, to be on a par with the white Europeans of South Africa. And it's this that Gandhi initially identifies with. And this is the reason why when he first makes a decision to stay in South Africa, particularly in relationship to represent Indians in one of the first campaigns, because a law is being introduced to disenfranchise the middle class Indians in terms of um, their property rights and also in terms of where they're able to live and set up business. Gandhi campaigns on that. But the more he campaigns and the more he's in South Africa, then changes begin to happen. Gandhi's um, arrested and sent to prison four times in South Africa in, those, in these 20 odd years. Um, and whilst he's in, in prison, he begins to see the way that African prisoners are treated. Gandhi's also reading quite widely at this stage. Um, so he reads um, Leo Tolstoy, um, The Kingdom of God is Within You. He also reads the essay on civil disobedience by the American abolitionist, Henry David Thoreau. Um, and he also begins to read some uh, writings of Ruskin, particularly in terms of um, his writings about labor and the importance of labor. Now, these individuals that I've just mentioned were also opponents in some respects of their own societies. And Gandhi begins to form a common sense of interest with these individuals who are um, nonconformists, who are critical of some of the excesses that they see of Victorian society, particularly the commercialization of society, the industrialization. And Gandhi begins to identify with many of these ideas. And this does lead to big transformations in his thinking. So whereas Gandhi initially had been an empire loyalist, for example, um, he had supported the British in the Boer War. He had supported the British in the Zulu Wars. He even supported the British and um, campaigned for Indians to sign up 
for the British in the First World War. Um, nevertheless, he does begin to change. And in the campaigns that he leads in South Africa, particularly the last two of his major campaigns, which by then are termed as passive resistance and passive resistors, Gandhi leads the campaigns whereby he is taking direct action. So he leads a campaign to rip up and burn passes which are imposed upon Indians to carry. Um, he also then goes on to lead mass raids across the different borders of southern Africa, completely ignoring the legalities in opposition to the legislations that are being implemented to control the movement of Indians, to control where they have a right to live, to control where they have a right to set up business. And as he is doing this, because these are pieces of legislation which are going to be affecting all Indians, not just the middle class Indians, you have the majority of Indians who are indentured labourers coming into the political stage. Uh, they are involved in demonstrations. They are involved in mass protests. And Gandhi, and it's at this point that Gandhi begins to see through the prejudices of the professional middle class Indians that he had always identified with. And he questions this. He's not happy with this. And he begins to develop a disdain for the prejudices towards low caste groups, towards low class Indians. And he also begins to change his mind about the Africans as well, because he becomes to see that there is a common cause between the African population and the Indians and other Asian groups who are facing similar um, hostilities, facing and confronting similar issues to do with racism and disenfranchisement. How did Gandhi relate to the established national movement when he did return to India? Well, by the time he comes home, um, which is at the beginning of 1915, Gandhi is hailed as the Mahatma, um, meaning the great soul. And this is particularly by leaders of the Indian National Congress, because they have been completely mesmerised by what he's been able to achieve in South Africa, because the campaigns that he led there had certainly caught the imagination of people worldwide, particularly in India. And Congress wanted to make use of the magic touch that Gandhi had, this, this sort of like populism that he had in many respects. So they certainly wanted him to be a part of their movement um, and to be a leader and spokesperson for their movement. Gandhi, um, in some ways, has, a, has quite a different agenda. He arrives back home. Um, he's undergone a personal transformation as well. When Gandhi was in South Africa, you know, he was dressed in um, as a typical English gent, wearing Western clothes, suit and ties, etc. Whilst he'd been in South Africa, he discards these. And by the time he returns home to India, he's very much dressing in indigenous clothes. And when he arrives in India, he decides to travel and to see India, uh, which he hasn't done really before. He's under the influence of an elder um, sort of leader called Gokale, who becomes his spiritual leader and guide. And he's the one that advises Gandhi to travel in India. And he also introduces Gandhi to some some issues that are taking place. And what, so Gandhi travels in India. But what's interesting is that he decides to travel third class. Um, he decides to walk everywhere. Um, and this also puts him at odds with the existing 
Indian nationalist movement, which is still incredibly patrician and elitist. This stage, they, you know, that they're all they're, all their discussions are in English. Gandhi is his native language is Gujarati, but he's also, of course, fluent in Hindi. Um, and he travels all over India, particularly North India. He goes to the villages, he goes to small towns. Um, and it's as he goes to these small towns that he's involved in some local campaigns. Um, he's invited particularly in one village in modern day Bihar, Shamparan, um, where the, there's a dispute between the, um, the workers on a plantation. It's an indigo plantation in the fields and the plantation owners who are the British because they are compelling the Indian peasants to grow, to grow a certain proportion of indigo on the land. Um, and of course, this is because it's a cash crop. This is not good for Indians. Gandhi goes to represent them there. And he does manage to achieve some kind of partial victory. There's a compromise that he that he reaches on behalf of these peasants. And this is something that is repeated again um, in two other significant localized campaigns in 1918. And because Gandhi has been able to utilize the skills that he had developed and nurtured in South Africa, which is first of all the skills of speaking um, on behalf of local people in terms of disputes and speaking to their grievances to the powers that be. But he also used his skills as a lawyer in terms of having an army of people who would gather information. So therefore, he would have the raw data on indices of poverty, on how much food in, um, individual households had, um, and what the levels of education were in particular villages. And he was able to marshal these facts uh, in a very lawyer-like manner to the British powers that be in the different um, states in India, the different provinces in India, as well as to the plantation owners. But he was also able to win the allegiance of various peasant groups and other groups because he was able to achieve some good for them in the sense of winning concessions from plantation owners or from um, the government. And that, in a way, begins to further furnish this image that Gandhi is, a, is able to walk on water. He's able to achieve things that the mainstream nationalist movement at this point has not been able to achieve. So Gandhi is quite wary of how Congress wished to use him. He's quite mistrustful of their approach, which is very constitutional. Um, it's very legalistic. It's um, based upon appealing to the better nature of the British in London and in Delhi to give concessions at a parliamentary level. Gandhi is quite mistrustful of parliamentary politics. When he writes his little booklet, Hind Swaraj, in there, he absolutely lambasts the notion of British democracy through parliamentarianism. Gandhi um, has a distance from this kind of approach and this kind of politics. He has an understanding that there has to be, to a certain extent, a bottom-up approach and to have some kind of mass mobilisation. So he wants to keep a distance from the established nationalist movement, but then at the same time, he also wishes to be a part of it. Um, and he certainly does become a part of it and becomes one of its main spokespersons in the early stages. What was the wider political context in India after the First World War when Gandhi launched his non-cooperation campaign? And what were the results of that campaign? In many respects, the world of the map is redrawn, particularly across Europe. 
um, and across much of Asia and Africa. When the war ends, one also has to remember that in India, some 1.5 million Indians had served in the British Armed Forces and made enormous sacrifices for the British Empire. And so when the war concludes, there is a strong sense in India that there should be some kind of recompense and recognition on the part of Indian suffering and their contribution to the war effort. But the British respond by introducing in 1919 a piece of legislation which is called the Rolat Act. This law basically wishes to keep in place the wartime ordinances that had existed. And these are very draconian ordinances um, in terms of um, trial without juries, in terms of laws over sedition, in terms of censorship over material, newspapers, booklets, etc. Gandhi's own Hind Swaraj gets censored. Um, and is banned. And this is further heightened when a protest takes place in the city of Amritsar in the Punjab in um, April 1919. And it becomes infamous because a British brigadier, General Dyer, is ordered there um, to basically ensure that martial law is respected. And he sends in uh, his battalions and sends the troops in to an area which is a massive park um, where there are tens of thousands of Indians, um, mostly family members who are assembling on that day. It's also a day of a local festival. And Dyer just orders the indiscriminate shooting into this park. At a conservative estimate, almost 400 people are killed. And this um, provocation, this action was widely condemned in India and also in the British Parliament. And Gandhi um, had organised a hartal in relationship to this. But he's so outraged at what happens that he calls the hartal off. Nevertheless, because of the bad faith of the British, Gandhi calls in the following year, in 1920, his non-cooperation campaign. And this is building on what has happened. On the centenary of the Amritsar massacre in 2019, British Prime Minister Theresa May was only willing to express regret at what had happened, but not to apologise on behalf of Britain. The tragedy of Jallianwala Bagh in 1919 is a shameful scar on British Indian history. As Her Majesty the Queen said before visiting Jallianwala Bagh in 1997, it is a distressing example of our past history with India. We deeply regret what happened and the suffering caused. I'm pleased that today the UK-India relationship is one of collaboration, partnership, prosperity and security. Indian diaspora make an enormous contribution to British society, and I'm sure the whole House wishes to see the UK's relationship with India continue to flourish. One of the things, of course, at the end of the First World War was the abolition of the Caliphate of the Ottoman Empire. This had a huge impact in India itself, particularly amongst the Muslim community. And Gandhi championed the interests and the grievances of the Muslim community over this. Uh, there was a movement that was established called the Khilafat movement. Gandhi associates himself with the leaders of these movements, who are two men that he has been friendly with, who are close confidants of his. And he also acknowledges, as he puts it, the three wrongs. There's the wrong of the Khilafat, which brings in the Muslim community. There is the wrong of the Punjab which over Amritsar, which brings in the Sikh community. 
and he marries that to a third demand, which he calls Purna Swaraj, which is full self-rule. And it is these three demands that go into the non-cooperation movement. Gandhi calls in non-cooperation for Indians to, particularly Indians who are working for the British, to walk away from their jobs. He calls for Indians to resign. And this is exactly what does happen. It's quite extraordinary. The movement doesn't last for very long. But in this non-cooperation campaign, there was a call for a boycott of British goods. Um, and there was a massive boycott of British goods. The importation of foreign cloth in this period um, almost halved from 1920 to 21. In this period, there were almost 400 strikes that took place by Indians, um, which involved 600,000 workers, and it resulted in the loss of 7 million workdays. There was also a mass exodus of students, Indian students, from colleges and schools. Um, so the movement was very, very vibrant, and it clearly touched a raw nerve, and it was answered by Indians on the ground participating on this mass scale. However, in 1922, Gandhi suddenly calls the movement to a halt. And the reason he calls it to a halt is because violence has occurred in two particular areas. I'll just mention one of them now. And this is in the small town of um, Charichura in North India. There had been protests erupting all over India under the auspices of non-cooperation. There had been demonstrations that had taken place in small towns and in small villages over, for example, inflation, over prices in, of goods in the markets. So in this sense, it's quite interesting how you see non-cooperation acting very much as the recipient of a whole series of grievances that Indians are feeling at this time, economic grievances, political grievances, educational grievances, industrial grievances, and everything. In the town of Charichora, there is a demonstrations that have been taking place and the police arrest some of the agitators. They put them into prison. A crowd go out to demonstrate, demanding the release of, their, uh, of the people who have been imprisoned. The police don't release them. There is an altercation that takes place, stones are thrown, etc. The police eventually end up ordering fire and two or three protesters are killed. This enrages the crowd. The crowd have a demonstration on the police station and because the crowd are enraged, it's, it's a horrible conflict situation and tempers are running high on both sides. The police station is set alight. It results in the death of 22 policemen. Obviously, the loss of life is, is, is not anything that anybody would condone. But it's quite interesting that Gandhi uses this as the basis to call off the movement. The movement is called off immediately. He has such sway that he's able to do this. But what's quite striking is that under his leadership and under his orders, the Indian National Congress is asked to issue a condemnation of the violence that has taken place and also to send a message of support and solidarity and condolences to the families of the bereaved of the policemen, which is fine, but there was no such condolences, messages that were sent to the families of the Indians who had been shot by the police. The Indian National Congress, under Gandhi's leadership and his insistence, referred to the Indian demonstrations as a mob. And I think that in that incidence, we begin to see a certain sense of how Gandhi views the mass movement that he himself is helping to ignite and give leadership to 
we're also beginning to see Gandhi's attitude towards different groups of Indians. Gandhi's belief in non-violence was never universally shared by the Indian freedom movement. One revolutionary from Punjab tracked down Michael O'Dwyer, the colonial official who was responsible for the massacre at Amritsar. He assassinated O'Dwyer in Britain in 1940. The name he adopted before he was hanged for the killing was Ram Muhammad Singh Asad. It was meant to symbolise the three religious communities of Punjab, Muslim, Hindu and Sikh. The song we're listening to, by the British group Asian Dove Foundation, was recorded in his honour. From a more philosophical or theoretical standpoint, what were the key tenets of the philosophy of non-violent resistance that Gandhi developed and that became so influential in other parts of the world? Well, Gandhi's philosophy, um, you know, those who are adherents of this, um, it's referred to as Satyagraha, which is um, a Sanskritic term, Satya meaning truth, and Graha referring to um, the insistence of force. Sometimes this is referred to as passive resistance, but Gandhi's own understanding of this was not about passivity. Uh, Gandhi wanted a very active form of resistance based upon the idea of truth, but he also wanted this philosophy to be based upon the principles of nonviolence. Um, I mentioned Tolstoy earlier on, and certainly um, at the beginning of the 20th century, Gandhi had a very short correspondence with Tolstoy just before he died. And Tolstoy had elaborated on the notions of nonviolence. And Gandhi very much imbibes this. He looks across the world and he looks at India and he sees that the societies that exist have been brought about and are kept in check through, as he sees it, violent means. He viewed the world very much in black and white. If there was injustice, if there were unjust laws, then one had a duty to oppose those unjust laws participate in mass civil disobedience, but also allow yourself to be arrested. Gandhi believed that actually being arrested was also part and parcel of a satyagraha, that one should not resist arrest. And so in this sense, it's also quite interesting when we think about other movements that um, Gandhi was aware of and um, that, that happened in his lifetime. If you think about his time, his short time in England, when he was studying law, he was certainly aware of the suffragettes. He didn't particularly like the methods of the suffragettes, because they didn't adhere to his particular notion of non-violent resistance. The Russian Revolution had happened in his lifetime. He saw the Bolsheviks and the idea of, Rus- of the Russian Revolution with an abhorrence and did not view this as the way forward. So he believed his philosophy was very much that you had to, it's a, it's a, it's a very honourable philosophy in one sense, that somehow you have to demonstrate that you are a better person than your opponent. And through that, you are able to shame and embarrass your opponent. And through that, you are able to show your opponent the error of their ways and the wrongdoing of their path. And through that, somehow they will metamorphize to coming towards your side. I must say that for myself as a historian, 
I'm not sure that history actually bears that out in terms of how the politics of societies actually work in reality. But nevertheless, this was the, the philosophy of Gandhi in terms of um, his practice of nonviolence. How did Gandhi approach the questions of class and what economic system India should adopt after independence? And what position did he adopt towards class struggles that were ongoing by the labouring classes of India during the 1920s, 30s and 40s? The question of class is is really interesting because um, in one sense, Gandhi's seen very much as the champion of the oppressed, uh, the champion of the downtrodden. And certainly within India and even in South Africa, yes, one could argue that um, that he clearly does display that um, in terms of the mass movements that he ignites and leads. Uh, Congress was not able to do this, but there is there is there, there are clearly issues here about class. Um, you know, Gandhi was not a Marxist. His notion of what class society was and class divisions were not were not that well worked out. That doesn't mean to say that he didn't understand that there were divisions in society. He clearly did see divisions and he wanted to overcome these kinds of divisions. Um, But he didn't really um, see the division in terms of economics or politics to do with class. He had a long um, correspondence with various Marxists who he didn't particularly like. So he had a correspondence with um, Sakhlatvala, who was an Indian communist in Britain. Uh, He became the first communist MP in the 1920s, representing Battersea in Britain. And in this correspondence, Gandhi uh, writes to Sakhladwala saying that, I do not regard capital as the enemy of labour. And I think that that really sums up how he sees this. He didn't regard conflict between labour and capital as being instrumental to the world that we lived in. He wanted labour and capital to work together because one of the other things that Gandhi, in his own thinking, disliked was tension and conflict in society. And he felt that tension and conflict was kept artificially alive by the kind of world that we lived in. So his prescription for India was that he wanted India to be made up of a society of village units, that these village units he saw should be semi-independent, that these were village units where the people within these communities would all be engaged in useful and meaningful economic activity. This is part of the reason why he championed the notion of spinning and the spinning wheel, because he believed that this was possible for every single person. He believed that every individual would be able to have their own spinning wheel. They could be mobile with their own spinning wheel. They would be able to spin cloth to both clothe themselves, as well as then be able to make cloth and material that they could sell. And that this was a useful activity It allowed useful employment, and it was without exploitation, as he saw it. He very much saw the village structure particularly village uh, village structure with elders who would be elected. He wanted these elders to be elected. He didn't want them just to be appointed. But he wanted, he thought that these village units were small enough whereby there would be an absence of the kind of conflict and violence that he saw as blighting industrial society. 
Um, and so, for example, for those that said that India had to follow the road of Western development in terms of urbanization and industrialization, Gandhi absolutely abhorred that. And you can understand why, you know, he had seen um, some of the really awful levels of poverty and squalor in both Victorian England and in the townships in South Africa. And he witnessed it in some of the big conurbations of Indian cities. Um, and that didn't appeal to him at all. He didn't. He could not see how this could be a way forward for humanity. So he very much wanted to a village type of structure. But at the same time, I think he was quite idealistic in terms of viewing these village structures as being without conflict, without tension, without exploitation, because even in, in villages, you do have tensions. You have tensions, particularly, for example, when it comes to agriculture. In village India, there were different kinds of agricultural communities on the land. Obviously, you had the landlords, but there were also divisions between the big landlords and more small petty landlords. There was a division between peasants. There were some peasants um, who were tillers, but they also had certain rights over their land. And therefore, that gave them certain rights as to what they were able to grow and plant. And then there were landless labourers who had absolutely no rights whatsoever to anything. So there were clearly these divisions on the land and in rural areas. And Gandhi never really quite understood or grasped what these divisions were. And he also didn't grasp the divisions in terms of class on an industrial scale. There were certainly worse strikes that take place in his lifetime. And it's quite interesting, his, his attitude towards them, because he doesn't champion them. The only time he does give his blessing to a strike is in 1919 in the town of um, the city of Ahmedabad, which is the capital of present day Gujarat. There was a strike there of textile workers and he was invited by um, the sister of the owner of the textile factory to adjudicate in a dispute between the textile workers and the textile management. And Gandhi did adjudicate. The workers were demanding a, whatever it was, I think it was a 45% pay rise um, and demanding other things. And the employers were just resisting this. Gandhi calls for a stay away protest. And the fact that he doesn't even want to call it a strike, I think speaks volumes. So the workers are told to stay away and stay at home. But whilst they're at home, Gandhi wants them to engage in reading, in prayer activity, in spinning. Um, he also demands that each of these strikers takes a vow of abstinence and also of nonviolence. And there is no picketing. Um, there's also no attempt by those workers to try and win solidarity from other workers in other similar settings in the state, in the city of Ahmedabad or anywhere else. Uh, Gandhi keeps this very much to himself. And in, what he does is that he enters discussions um, and arbitration on the behalf of the workers with management. And again, Gandhi believes that there has to be a compromise. For him, this is the true sort of modicum of success, if you like, that both parties should be seen to gain something and both parties should be seen to concede something. And therein lies an honourable compromise and an honourable peace. And so Gandhi does prosecute a agreement, a deal. And in this deal, the workers are made to give up certain things, but they've also extracted something from the employer. And the employer is also made to give up certain things, but they have also extracted something, which is industrial peace. 
And similarly, in dealings on the land, Gandhi did similar things between landlords and peasants. Yeah, Gandhi's attitude was always that um, landlords and employers should not be ruthless exploiters of their workers and peasants, that they should deal with them in some kind of just manner, but in return for which the workers and the peasants should respect the right of the owners and the landlords to be owners and to be landlords, and therefore they should not confiscate their private property. So in this sense, Gandhi is talking about an industrial piece. He's talking about, he's talking about a society whereby he believes there can be an absence of conflict if one follows his path of being a satyagraha. But of course, what that does is leave intact precisely some of the worst excesses and injustices of what a class-ridden society is in that sense. And when we have strikes that take place later on in Gandhi's lifetime, particularly in the 30s and 40s, Gandhi is absolutely shocked by these strikes. There's the very famous strike that takes place in 1946, which is, um, I mean, again, the British refer to this as a mutiny, um, but it's of Indian sailors where they go out on strike on British um, shore establishments and on um, British warships. And it's a massive strike wave. It begins in the city of Bombay, but it spreads very quickly to other port cities, particularly Karachi, Calcutta, Bombay. Well, Bombay is where it begins and also into Madras. And the other thing that was very significant about this particular strike was that it brought together Hindu and Muslim sailors together in one unity. And they identified themselves as being united. What does Gandhi do in this? Does he go and celebrate these sailors who are striking? Does he go and support them? Does he call upon the rest of the Indian nationalist movement to support them? No, he doesn't. He attacks them and um, says that this is a monstrous unity and that this is not something that he identifies with or is going to bless. And he castigates these sailors for having the temerity to take this kind of action. And I think that also, along with the other examples that I've given, particularly at Chari Chora, I think this is betraying a certain kind of elitism which is at the heart of Gandhi. It's betraying a certain form of class elitism and also a certain form of caste elitism, I would argue. How did Gandhi understand the caste divisions of Indian society and how did he relate to figures like Ambedkar, who argued on behalf of Dalits? Now, again, um, Gandhi absolutely abhorred caste divisions in society and he particularly abhorred the way that untouchables were treated and championed the right of untouchability. He wanted Hindu society to recognise untouchables as being part of the mainstream Hindu fold. So far, so good. However, again, there are problems with this. And the problems particularly come to light in his relationship with Ambedkar. Ambedkar, who was an untouchable individual himself, he was the um, undisputed leader of the untouchable community in colonial India. And there's a big dispute that takes place in the, in the early 1930s between Gandhi and Ambedkar. Ambedkar and the untouchables have called for separate electorates. They've demanded this of the British. The British had given separate electorates to other groups before. And so they demanded it for untouchables themselves. Gandhi was implacably opposed to this. And uh, when you have the roundtable conference that takes place in 1931 to 32, Gandhi it speaks against this. The British grant these reforms to the um, Dalit community, to the untouchables. 
and Gandhi immediately declares a hunger strike. And he threatens to fast unto death because for him, he sees that this is the vivisection of the Hindu community. And um, he, he attacks the British for it and demands that it should be removed. And he threatens he's going to fast unto death. And this is no joke. As a result, an enormous amount of political and moral pressure is brought to bear on Ambedkar, particularly by including by the untouchable community themselves, because, of course, the fear is that if Gandhi does get ill and if Gandhi were to die, then, of course, the people that would get the blame would be the untouchable community. And they feared there would be enormous violence and communal violence by the majority Hindu community against them. And so because of this, very reluctantly, Ambedkar is forced to climb down over the issue of separate electorates. And it takes less than two days of Gandhi fasting to get this concession from Ambedkar. Some historians have argued that um, Gandhi undertook fasts as a political weapon in terms of getting his own way. And this particular fast, I would argue, is certainly one such example of Gandhi employing the fasting technique as a form of political blackmail in order to get his political interests granted. So this happens. So there is no um, separate electorates for untouchables. And it's also quite striking in terms of how Gandhi, you know, Gandhi sees himself as being in a better position to lead the interests of untouchables which is quite a galling statement, considering he himself is from a middle caste background. Um, the fact that he is willing to poo-poo and not take seriously the right of an individual like Ambedkar, who has been declared the leader of the untouchables because he himself was an untouchable. But Gandhi doesn't recognise this. In the 1930s, Gandhi established a newspaper called Harijan, which is the word for children of God. Um, and that was his term for the untouchable community of India. Although it can sound as if it's um, respectful of the untouchable community, nevertheless, children of God is quite a patronising term. You know, it is referring to them as children and therefore infantilising that community. And of course, in that is the underlying thread whereby Gandhi does not think this community is fit enough to act as their own agents to decide upon their own destiny and to prosecute a campaign on their own behalf set by their own demands and their own vision, that somehow it requires the beneficence of someone like Gandhi to come in. That's an incredibly, not just a patronising attitude, but again, I think it betrays a certain strand of deep-seated caste and class elitism, which I think is at the heart of what Gandhism is about here. When Ambedkar spoke about Gandhi after his death, his opinions were still rather scathing. I feel quite surprised. You see, the interest is the outside world, Western world particularly, seems to be taking in Mr. Gandhi. I cannot understand that. So far as India is concerned, he was in my judgment, an episode in the history of India, never an epoch maker. Gandhi would, has already vanished from the memory of the people in this country. His memory is kept up because the Congress party annually, you see, gives a holiday, either on his birthday or some other day connected with some event in his life, has a celebration 
every year going on for seven days in a week. Naturally, people's memory is revived. But if these artificial respirations were not given, I think Gandhi would be long, long forgotten. You don't feel then that uh, he fundamentally changed the aspect? Of not at all. Yeah. Not at all. In fact, he was all the time double dealing. What was Gandhi's relationship in the Congress leadership of the 1930s to a figure like Nehru on the one hand or Boj on the other? Well, Nehru, of course, is seen very much as carrying the mantle of Gandhi. He was seen as being blessed by Gandhi and therefore to be his natural heir. And the whole history of the Indian National Congress into the independence era is written in that kind of narrative. But I think the 1930s politically was also a very interesting time in um, India. You know, some people have talked about Nehru being very left wing. Nehru certainly did have clear attitudes where he was quite open and sympathetic to certain left-wing causes. So he certainly was, to a certain extent, an admirer of what had happened in Russia in 1917. He was certainly uh, very sympathetic to and involved in the League Against Imperialism, an organisation that Gandhi had never been a part of. But in the 1930s, there's also something else that is happening in India. And this is uh, where we see the political maturation of certain left-wing organisations particularly in terms of the Communist Party of India, which by the early 1930s had existed for over a decade in India and was a growing organisation after Congress and the All India Muslim League. It was the third largest party in colonial India of Indians. But you also had individuals such as uh, Subhachandra Bose, who became a leader of Congress and also a leader of more radical forces in and around Indian nationalism. We also see inside of Congress a caucus that was formed in 1934, and this was called the Congress Socialist Party. And in this early period of the 1930s, membership of the Congress Socialists and the uh, Communist Party of India, um, the the, the lines were quite blurred um, in terms of membership. And this, I think, indicates um, how there was a sense of commonality of interests in terms of a left-wing political project. This, of course, was not to the liking of the majority of Congress hierarchy, who were very right-wing. Many of them were landowners and corporate and business interest people. And, of course, any notion of socialism and communism was total anathema to them. So this clearly represented a tension within Congress itself, and particularly at the heart of Congress, around leadership. This comes to a head specifically in 1935 to 1937, when Shubhas Chandra Bose is elected by a massive majority to be the president of Congress. And it's under his leadership in um, 1937 that Bose attempts to move Congress much further to the left, particularly on questions of property, particularly on questions of class, as well as obviously fighting against the British. And he, he wants to prosecute a much more forceful struggle against the British to evict the British out of India and not just rely upon peaceful, non-violent means. He looks to Nehru in this because he's very close to Nehru, but Nehru is very much sitting on the fence. You know, Nehru has one leg with the with the left and he has one foot in Gandhi's camp. Some people who are favourable to Nehru, um, I suppose you could excuse it by saying that Nehru is trying to keep together quite a motley group of people in Congress. 
But nevertheless, I think it also does demonstrate a certain level of cowardice on the part of Nehru, which Gandhi exploits. And this comes to a head particularly in 1939, when Bose is up for leadership again. And again, he wins. But on this occasion, Gandhi puts up his own candidate who loses. But more fundamentally than that, Gandhi issues a statement and he gets the leadership of Congress to agree to this statement. And that is that whoever is elected leader will abide by Gandhi's wishes of his of adherence to his form of Satyagraha. Bose, although he's been elected and re-elected, cannot do this. He refuses to agree to be hamstrung by this. And in some respects, one could argue that Bose does the honourable thing, which is that he resigns in that situation, much to the elation of Gandhi and his supporters, because now they are in a position where they can completely dominate the Congress leadership, but more fundamentally, where they're able now to totally discipline and police Nehru and keep Nehru with both feet inside of their camp. And Nehru did very little to side with Bose openly. Privately, he certainly was sympathetic to Bose, but he wasn't willing to go against Gandhi because he said that although Bose was great, he said Gandhi was India. And in some ways, perhaps that's indicative of the fact that Gandhi did have such a massive standing across India, which Bose perhaps didn't do, but it did leave quite a bitter taste for Bose and for many people in the Congress Socialists and the, Con and the Communist Party of India that this is the manner in which the left were being treated and being marginalised. And so again, here, although Gandhi is seen as being a champion of the masses and um, wanting to have a bottom-up strategy, I think what Bose and the left were positing was a different kind of bottom-up strategy that they wanted. It's interesting that also in 1937, under Nehru's leadership, a certain wing of Congress, i.e. the leftists, had attempted to prosecute what they called a mass contact campaign. And this was particularly towards Muslim peasants and Muslim workers, uh, where they were making direct appeal to Muslims and Hindus for a common cause with each other on the basis of their economic and political interests, as opposed to on the basis of religious and communitarian divisions. And this was a very different kind of strategy for unity and a very different kind of strategy based upon a bottom-up grassroots approach to the type that Gandhi was prosecuting. So Gandhi's relationship to, to the left is certainly one of hostility, and that is very, very transparent in terms of his attitude and his dealings with Bose, um, and also his attitude to workers um, and to strikes and to disputes there, but also the way that he wanted to ensure that Nehru was going to be very firmly tamed by him. Bose was so determined to fight against British rule that he teamed up with Japan during the Second World War. He organised a force called the Indian National Army that fought alongside the Japanese army against British soldiers. This is Sebastian Bose speaking to you from Tokyo. The following clip comes from his broadcast to the people of India from Tokyo. What is most important of all is the situation near India. No amount of Anglo-American propaganda can either ignore or hide the fact that after achieving brilliant victories in Hong Kong, in the Philippines, in the East Indies, in Malaya and Singapore, and in Burma, the forces of the Imperial Japanese Army now stand on the frontier of India. Bose died in an air crash during the final days of the war, shortly before the surrender of Japan. 
How did Gandhi and his allies decide to launch the Quit India campaign during the Second World War? And what were the principal outcomes of that campaign? Well, yes, the Quit India movement, the resolution is um, is launched by Gandhi on the 8th of August in 1942. And as, as a result of him launching this campaign, he's immediately arrested and detained for the rest of the war, as are the entire leadership of Congress. The fact that this takes place in the middle of the war um, is also an important historical context, because we have to understand that by 1942, things were not looking that great for the British, you know, even though they were a massive imperial power. Nevertheless, they had experienced huge losses in Asia. They had lost Singapore, they had lost Malaysia, and the Japanese were also in Burma, right next to India, banging on the doors of colonial Bengal. And that was a huge shock to the complacency of the British who really up until then um, had felt quite invincible in terms of both their position in the Second World War and being part of the Allies, but also quite invincible in terms of holding on to their colonial possessions. And this had an impact in terms of how the British back in London were thinking. You know, they knew that they had to hold on to the biggest jewel in their crown, India, um, and that, that India had to remain not only loyal, but that India had to remain conflict-free in terms of the British being able to rely upon India and Indian troops. And to that end, the demands that Indian nationalists have been making for both um, self-rule and also for independence and reforms were not being lost on the British. And so at home, the cabinet launched a mission which they sent off to India, led by Stafford Cripps, who was a Labour man, to try and see in 1942 whether or not they could come to some kind of agreement with the leaders of Congress and other Indian groups about how India could be governed. Remember, this is still not talking about outright independence. There's still a notion that the British will be in India forever and ever. But that in itself indicates how the British were worried about India and also their fortunes in terms of the war. Gandhi understood this. And it's in this context that he calls for the Quit India Resolution and for the British to depart from India. Obviously, there's no way that the British are going to tolerate this, which is why they arrest and detain all the leaders of Congress um, and throw them into jail. Over 100,000 people are thrown into jail as well, because the masses do answer Gandhi's call to quit India. Um, and there's enormous insurrectionary activity that takes place, because although Gandhi is arrested and detained, and although Nehru and all the other leaders are arrested, nevertheless, the activists on the ground, and it's a new generation, a new leadership that is beginning to emerge, particularly led by the Congress Socialist Party. Um, and this is where, and people who had been around Bose, um, and these are people who take Gandhi's mantra of do or die, literally, and they decide to do as opposed to die. So therefore, you have mass sabotage, you have telegraph lines, you have railway lines that um, that are sabotaged and blown up and detonated. You have derailments taking place. You have occupations taking place. Um, you have calls for Indians to to drop out of the Indian army, to mutiny, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, the British come down like a ton of bricks because, of course, they do have wartime ordinances in place. So the Viceroy at the time, Lord Linlithgow, orders the aerial bombardment on a mass scale of cities such as Bombay, 
and Delhi in Calcutta, which results in a mass loss of life. It takes the British the best part of six to seven weeks to finally put down the Quit India Rebellion. They are able to do this because, of course, they have all the means at their disposal with which to just arrest people, detain them, and also to shoot people with impunity. And they are able to to assert their control by the end of 1942 for the rest of the war period. So, you know, I think that what's quite interesting here is that some scholars have argued that the Quit India call by Gandhi was in some ways, perhaps the most un-Gandhian of all of his satyagrahas, in the sense that he said, do or die. And some people have taken to read into that, that Gandhi had shifted from a position of 100% adherence to non-violence. I'm not so sure that I buy that. I think that Gandhi still maintained his adherence to non-violence. When he said, do or die, I think in his own terms, he would have preferred if the do meant direct action, which entailed violence and sabotage in a manner in which he did not approve of, he therefore would have preferred die. But in a way, it was very good that the majority of young activists did not take that path. They decided to do. And that in itself is also, I think, quite interesting, because in that Second World War, you do have a scenario whereby a new leadership, a new generation is beginning to emerge, which is much more radical. And one has to remember that, you know, Gandhi at this stage is already in his 60s, very advanced years. Every movement that he has led in India, you've had a succession of different Indians involved in these movements who have both answered his call, but in some respects, they've taken the movement much further because the mass of ordinary Indians in their own activism, they've also been learning through their own struggles. They have been looking at what's worked, what hasn't worked. And to be sure, many of them would still have agreed to support Gandhi and to follow Gandhi, but they were also learning other lessons through their own experiences, things which Gandhi could not always control. How did Gandhi view the rise of the Muslim League and the call for the partition of India along religious lines? Well, yes, um, the Muslim League, I mean, to give it its official title, it's the All India Muslim League, um, you know, because this is India, one India that we are talking about. It was established in 1907. It was established with British blessing, which is the other thing that has to be noted here. And the reason for acknowledging that is to understand how the old principles of empire of divide and rule were utterly enshrined in the way that the British governed India from the beginning right the way through to its very ignoble end in 1947. Part of the reason for the British giving their blessing and recognising the All India Muslim League is because it represented a different pole of attraction to the Indian National Congress. And the British would play them off against each other throughout the early part of the 20th century. Um, Gandhi's attitude to the Muslim League is quite interesting. He was certainly um, respectful of it. And in the early stages, there was a pact between the All India Muslim League and the Indian National Congress. It had been signed in Lucknow in 1916, whereby the two organisations would work together for self-governance, as it was then. 
just as the Indian National Congress, the All Indian Muslim Muslim League was established by patrician, well-heeled, landed, gentry, industrial Muslims, um, who again were seeking, like their Indian National Congress counterparts, to have a seat at the table with the British. You know, these were not revolutionary radical formations at all. They wanted to represent, they wanted the right to represent the interests of respectable, educated Muslim opinion to the British. So Gandhi was quite favourable and, and wanted to work with the Muslim League. And of course, that they did in the early stages, in the 1910s, in the 1920s. But by the time we get to the 1930s and 40s, we do begin to see a parting of ways. Um, and there's a whole variety of reasons for this. One is partly to do with the way that the politics inside the Indian National Congress are manifesting themselves. Because although the Indian National Congress does have Muslims as a part of it, and there's certainly um, some individuals who are Muslim leaders that are part of the Congress, nevertheless, it is dominated by people who are from a Hindu background. And what's significant about them is not that they are Hindu, but it is how they seek to employ and exploit communalist sentiments within India, particularly at the level of village communities or in industrial settings. And because communal tensions had been fermenting for many, many, many decades throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th century, these particular interests in Congress had no desire to challenge these communal feelings in India. Uh, the British, of course, had their own reasons for not wanting to challenge these communalist feelings. In fact, the exact opposite, they were wanting to entrench them much further. And so Gandhi saw himself very much as being a member of Congress, not so much the All India Muslim League. And he had a very difficult relationship with Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who eventually comes to take over the leadership of the League in the late 1930s, early 1940s. We're now going to hear a clip of Muhammad Ali Jinnah broadcasting to America. Jinnah made the case for partition and a Muslim-majority state to be called Pakistan. One India is impossible realization. It'll inevitably mean that the Muslim will be transferred from the domination of the British to the caste Hindu rule, a position that Muslim will never accept. As an all-India minority, we shall be under the rule of the permanent Hindu majority of about three to one, which will virtually mean one nation ruling another by means of ballot box. The writ and fiat of such a government will neither command respect nor acceptance and allegiance, and such a government will therefore be impossible. It can only function by force will never secure the willing approval and sanction of the hundred millions of Muslims. Unless the gravity of this aspect of the problem is realized and tackled frankly and boldly by the British government, chaos is inevitable, which must have serious repercussions and endanger the world peace. Our scheme of division of India gives Hindus three-fourths of the country, and the Muslims secure a dominant voice in the remaining one quarter of India, thereby giving the two nations scope and opportunity to develop, to develop in accordance 
with their own culture and ideology so as to contribute to the peace and advancement of the world as a whole. And the other thing to bear in mind is two things. Well, I suppose two things. One is I mentioned the Khilafat movement earlier in India, which obviously was a movement that identified with Muslim interests. Gandhi had utterly championed that. When it comes to the All India Muslim League, and again, it's important to recognize that the question of partition and the question of Pakistan did not become an idea until very late on in the 1940s. The idea of um, a partition program was not even talked about until 1947. The idea of Pakistan hadn't even been mentioned until 1945-46. So you know, the All India Muslim League, what it was arguing for was for the sole right to represent Muslim interests, Muslim political interests and economic interests within a federated Indian state. The problem was this was total anathema to Congress, who by the 1930s firmly believed that only they had a right and could speak for all Indians. And this is how they wanted to project themselves. And this certainly comes to the fore by the time we get to the end of the Second World War and we're into 1946, early 47, whereby Congress and the Muslim League are not able to agree upon anything. Congress is demanding a federated status for um, India. But Nehru in particular is utterly opposed to this. Nehru had been influenced by some of the experiments that had been taking place in terms of the Soviet Union and also in terms of China, uh, the newly emergent um, independent People's Republic of China in 1945, which, of course, were dominated by a strong centralized center whereby the state and the government was going to be the instrument of modernization. This is what Nehru wanted for India himself. Of course, that could not tolerate a federated state of an independent India, because federation would mean that there would be local autonomous regions. This is what the All India Muslim League was demanding. And so therefore, you have a complete point of tension. Gandhi himself, and it's important to recognize here, Gandhi was totally opposed to partition. He wanted one united India to emerge after the British left. He wanted this India to be for everyone, an India where all communities were treated with respect and with complete equality. Uh, so when partition did come, uh, Gandhi was mortified. He saw that as the vivisection of his own body, which he was liking to the map of India. So he certainly believed very sincerely in the idea of Hindu-Muslim unity. The real problem was the politics that he was rooted in, his particular style of spirituality, of nonviolent satyagraha, whereby he also believed that only the educated appointed leaders had a right to negotiate and had a right to dictate what kind of future India should have, meant that he wasn't equipped with the politics and a strategy of how to prevent the tragedy of partition. You know, when I mentioned the Royal Navy mutiny, that happened in February 1946. Now, obviously, nobody knew that um, 18 months later we were going to be at partition. 
And even though there was incredibly heightened communal violence and communal frenzy that had been taking place, particularly in 1946, 45 and 46, the fact that there could have been this incredible strike action by Hindu and Muslim sailors, which completely mesmerized and captured the imagination of the Indian masses, where in a city like Bombay and Karachi, you had ordinary Indians bringing mass solidarity in terms of food provision to the strikers. That could have been galvanized by Gandhi. And that could have pointed to, arguably, quite a different kind of future for India based upon unity. But it wasn't the kind of unity that Gandhi had championed and argued for and prosecuted in his own lifetime. And in a way, for me, the question of partition is a failure of Gandhi and his politics, really. You know, he he died a very sad man indeed, because he wanted Hindu-Muslim unity. He wanted one united India to emerge. But his own particular philosophy of politics was not sufficient to stand up against both state violence and also to stand up against the communalized frenzy that had been whipped up by the politics of divide and rule. To challenge both of those kinds of things, you needed a much, much more effective bottom-up kind of strategy, which Gandhi was ill-equipped with. Ashes are all that remain of the man who symbolised India's finest aspirations. Shortly after India finally won its freedom, Gandhi was murdered by a far-right Hindu nationalist in 1948. His funeral became a focus for intense national mourning. Closing behind, pressing forward, came a million mourners. Around the pyre, the throng became packed as the body reached its resting place. Of all the faces in that vast multitude, the most serene was that of the Mahatma. The mass hysteria was broken by the chanting of a hymn, Mahatma Gandhi has become immortal. In the rising flames, the spirit of a great man passed to his gods. As a final question, can I ask you, How do the Hindu nationalist forces that currently dominate Indian politics relate to the legacy of Gandhi? And has there been any reckoning with the role of the RSS in his assassination? Well, of course, it's quite striking that um, for uh, since uh, 2014, India has been governed by the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is a Hindu nationalist political organisation and party headed by Narendra Modi. One of the other key things about Modi and also um, the BJP is that it's a big political party which acts as a family and incubator of various Hindu nationalist, very right-wing extremist fundamentalist forces, one of them being the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayamsavak Sangha, which Modi, as a young man, was a member of and perhaps is still a member of. And the reason that the RSS is quite significant to our conversation in relation to this question is because when Gandhi was assassinated on the 30th of January 1948, it was two members of the RSS who were the perpetrators. Uh, Nathuram Godse was the one who pulled the trigger that killed Gandhi, um, and he was a leading light of the RSS. The RSS was a paramilitary Um, Hindu outfit that had been established in the 1920s. It very much looked up to and admired and modelled itself on Mussolini's fascists, both in terms of its military posturing, as well as the way that it saw 
India as being a country that uh, was dominated by, as they saw it, a pure Hindu people. So the politics of the RSS and the politics of the BJP today are incredibly central in terms of how they think about Gandhi. It's a very in the last few years we have had the 70th anniversary of Gandhi's assassination, and it's quite striking that we see two quite contradictory tendencies that are taking place in terms of the right in India. On the one hand, in 2019, when we actually did have the um, 70th anniversary, you had organisations such as the Hindu Mahaspa, where the leaders of that, uh, they had a mascot of Gandhi, an effigy of Gandhi, which they burnt in celebration that they had um, that Gandhi had been assassinated and killed in 1948. This was a huge embarrassment to Modi and the leadership of the BJP, and they desperately moved very quickly to scupper that and to attempt to discipline the leadership of the Hindu Mahaspa, uh, which is part of the BJP. Uh, because of course, you know, this this is bad publicity for um, a supposedly a modern India, and that leads to an a second strand of this, which is that the BJP had completely avoided Gandhi for much of Indian history since um, his death, uh, completely avoided any mention of him, any reckoning of him. But of course, because the BJP are now in government and because there was the 70th anniversary of his assassination and also he commemorated the 150th birth anniversary of Gandhi, the Indian state led by the BJP undertook to lead the commemorations of these celebrations of Gandhi's birth date. And it was quite striking that in one of these, you have uh, Modi who goes over to the Sabramati ashram in Ahmedabad, Gandhi's ashram, and sits there at a spinning wheel, just as Gandhi does in the famous pose. And of course, you know, the, the message is very clear that this is an attempt to try to claim the mantle of Gandhi for not what Gandhi's vision of a united India was, but for the way that the BJP's projection of India is, which is very much based around Hindu chauvinism and the assertion of a very exclusivist Hindu fundamentalist extremist identity, which of course would have been total anathema to Gandhi, which is why there's been such outrage, particularly by Gandhi's family members over this, and quite rightly so, I would argue. But I would also add one other thing here, and that is that there is enormous tension at the heart of the BJP around Modi as to how they are going to reckon with Gandhi. Because in one sense, it's a circle that you cannot square. You cannot deny that the RSS were his assassins, although there are attempts to do this. And certainly amongst um, some of the more hardened elements inside of the BJP around the RSS and the Hindu Mahasva, they want to rehabilitate Godse. They want Godse to be labelled a martyr for Mother India. They want Godse to be a hero of India. But of course, you, you can't do that without um, at the same time saying that he did the right thing in terms of killing Gandhi. The two things cannot sit um, in the same breath. And so therefore, this represents an enormous political tension inside of the BJP, I would argue. News just trickling in right there. BJP leader from Madhya Pradesh, Anil Sumatra, has been suspended by the Bharatiya Janata Party after 
he went on to make controversial statement where he ended up calling Mahatma Gandhi Pakistan's father. Since Modi became Prime Minister, the BJP has repeatedly found itself embroiled in controversy when party activists attacked Gandhi and celebrated his killer Godse. This time, Pragya Singh Thakur has said Nathuram Godse, Mahatma Gandhi's assassin, was a deshbhakt, is a deshbhakt and will remain one. And uh, she says he's a patriot, calling him uh, a terrorist uh, by anybody will only get them defeated in these elections. What's happening here is that you have a conflict between Modi leading the BJP as a political party and wanting to project himself as a world statesman on a global stage and therefore wanting to have alliances and deals with different countries across the globe and not just in the West, but also, of course, with the the Gulf states. There are enormous treaties, economic treaties and alliances that have been signed under Modi with various Gulf leaders, including Saudi Arabia. Now, these are, of course, Muslim countries. They want to do business with India and vice versa. They don't want India to be turned into a communal bloodbath because of the instability and insecurity that that would provide for business to function. On the other hand, of course, inside of the BJP, you do have this incredibly hard core, which is extremely strident, extremely vociferous, and Modi can't ignore them either. So, you know, he's, he's got a very different, difficult balancing act to perform there. I don't think he'll be able to to keep that balance forever and ever. I think at some point, those tensions both within the BJP, as well as movements that will happen outside of India, um, you know, so the fact that there's this enormous movement of Indian farmers that has been out on the streets of India, the fact that before the lockdown was imposed last March, there was the incredible movement of Muslim women in the city of Delhi at Shaheen Bahag, who were protesting against the citizenship changes that the Modi government was trying to introduce. Those forms of mass activism uh, within India coming from below, which are uniting people, as well as the tensions within the BJP, I think that a combination of those factors could have quite a marked impact upon the fortunes of the BJP and also the fortunes of Modi at some point. And I don't think that Modi will be able to ride that out. So it'll be very interesting to see what does happen. And of course, you know, attempting to cloak yourself in Gandhi Satyagraha is, is, is just an impossible circle to square for Modi, no matter how much he attempts to try and do this. Many thanks to Tala Ahmed for giving us such a detailed account of Gandhi's role and place in modern India. If you want to know more, I'd recommend starting with her recent article for Jacobin and with her book about Gandhi.